Hello, everybody, and welcome to Teaching in the Arts, my podcast. My name is Peter Hawley. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for coming back if you've been here before. A big show uh, today and and the last show of the uh, calendar year and last show of the uh, academic uh, fall term. We're going to take a little bit of a break, and I'll talk more about that uh, at the end of the broadcast. Um, my guest today is the legendary uh, horse race announcer, and legendary is not a synonym for old, uh, the great horse racing announcer, Tom Durkin, and I will talk more about that in a moment. But first... A little bit of an update. Uh, last week, we had uh, a couple folks from Old Town School of Folk Music on, and they were talking about the uh, Save Old Town movement. A week ago when we uh, recorded this, uh, they had just under 8,000 change.org petitions. Now they have just under 10,000 change.org petitions signed, uh, signatures on the petition. And uh, earlier this week, uh, Old Town tweeted out that they are postponing the sale of their Armitage building. That was a big centerpiece of the discussion last week. So I am not saying the Teaching in the Arts podcast uh, helped that, but it didn't hurt it. Uh, Really good work to you guys at uh, the Save Old Town School organization and I will keep everyone posted on that. The podcast today is, uh, as I said, the last one of of the, the year. And my guest is Tom Durkin. And the reason I'm doing this is people have listened to the show before, go to the website. I am working on this documentary uh, about horse racing announcers. And in this documentary, I've interviewed several of them. And in November, I was in Saratoga Springs, New York, in Tom Durkin's library uh, in his house and uh, had a nice interview with him. And in my film, uh, he's only going to be in it five, six, seven minutes, something like that, uh, spread out over time. But I've got a nice 45-minute or so interview and it's really, really interesting. And in, in my film, uh, there are two things going on. I'm interviewing horse race announcers. I've, I've gone, filmed them doing their job. And the parallel story is I am going to call horse race in the spring of 2019 myself, good, bad, or otherwise. I'm going to be doing it sort of participatory. We're going to see how how it all works. So I'm using Tom Durkin as sort of a mentor. So I get a little bit of uh, what's your background, but then start asking him advice and and help and things like that. And that that I, I felt I needed an outlet for this really good interview that I'm only going to use a portion of. And since I have an outlet, this podcast, I'm, I'm having Tom Durkin on. So let me explain a few things. This is actually lifted from my film set. Uh, I'm in Tom's uh, library. Uh, I'm shooting with two cameras. Uh, we're both mic'd up. And uh, you're going to hear three things you're, uh, during the course of it. You're going to hear um, three little technical filmmaking problems that I'm choosing not to edit out because the conversation Tom and I are having during that uh, the, the little f- you know, 15, 20-second long break is really interesting. He, in fact, tells me at one point, I'll give you that one to take back to your class. Uh, so that was nice. Uh, and the reason I also want to do it is it really is an example of teaching in the arts. Here, and this would be the lesson of the day portion, uh, this master... Uh, is teaching me uh, the students. So we've re- reverse roles. Usually I'm the teacher and, and I talk to students and, and we go that way. But here I am a student and it's always good to learn something. And I learned an awful lot from Tom Durkin. And at the end of the interview, I, I asked him, so any questions for me? And he has a, a really good question for me. He's funny and he's charming. And uh, even if you aren't a horse racing fan or a fan of horse racing announcers, I think you're really going to find this interesting. We talk about the stress of the job. We talk about self-hypnosis. We talk about what it took for him to get to that point in the career. We talk about reading. He is a very, very smart man. Uh, He's read a lot. He has a huge library. We talk about words. Uh, I believe at some point he says the uh, bricks uh, of, I'm going to misquote him here, but um, the bricks of a race call are words, you know, that make up a race call. It's really, really fascinating interview. A lot of fun. And I really appreciate Tom Durkin for letting me do this. So uh, you can listen to my interview with uh, horse racing announcer Tom Durkin right now. Because the the difficulty in calling races is that you have to memorize the colors of the silks that the jockeys wear, and that's how you know the names of the horses. So you have to make that instant identification. And that's the hard part to learn. Uh, I don't consider myself a particularly intelligent person, but I'm able, through practice, to have been able to, uh, you know, get that um, mastered. But you do it between races. I mean, that's the thing that amazes me. I mean, you know, uh, tomorrow it's going to be an NFL Sunday. Uh, the players have names on their jerseys and numbers, and they haven't changed the roster, you know, this yeah. week much. And so you know who's who. You know, Tom Brady's number 12, you know. Um, 
But you know, here between race one and race two, you've got 30 minutes, 25 minutes, you've got 12 new horses, eight to 12 new horses. Mm-hmm. I mean, how do you work on that muscle in your brain to do it that quickly and you know, turn at, off the first race? After a while, it's, uh, it's, not, it's not the hardest part of the job. After a while, but by far and away, not the hardest part of the job. Uh, I could memorize, in the beginning of the day, I could memorize maybe a 10-horse field in a minute and a half. But as the day went on and there were more colors in my head, more names in my head, uh, fatigue, uh, just you got mentally fatigued and it would take longer. So at the end of the day, like at at the end of the day at Saratoga, which was a grinding day, uh, it would take me, you know, six, seven, eight minutes to memorize uh, 10 horses. But it's not part of the... I don't know. Part of the thing with calling races, uh, the knack, I think that's a good word for it, uh, is that you have to forget. So, and I tell people it's easier to remember something than it is to forget. And they go, why are you tired? That doesn't make any sense. And I said, okay, you know what your birthday is? Okay, now forget that. (laughs) So when you're memorizing the horses, the, you know, uh, in the first race, the color red means Peter. I got it. Jockey comes out in red the second race. That horse's name is Bob. No, it's not Peter anymore. It's Bob. Third race, somebody comes out in red, and that's Joe. All right, I got Joe. Used to be Bob and Peter. And then it's Phil in the fourth race. So Phil and, and all those colors and those names. Uh, so you just have to work on the... On the memorization. So, so you said it's not the hardest part. What is a hard part or the hardest part? Uh, the hardest part is fear of failure for me, uh-huh. uh, and that would be stress. Yeah. yeah. And uh, in time, I would give up a very, very good job uh, calling the Triple Crown on uh, network television uh, because I just did not want to deal with the stress anymore. Yeah, well, we'll talk about that in a, in a moment. But yeah, that's so. W- here's a question I have. Well, I want to talk about sort of the role of the announcer. What do you think the role of the racetrack announcer is? And there's probably two roles. One, the role for the people who are in the stands, they're mm-hmm. live, and then the ones watching or listening on television or radio or wherever people listen now. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the role of the announcer is play by play. And color too, right? a little bit, right? Well, uh, you're colorful. <laughs> it's it's more play by play than color, mm-hmm. but uh, when you get into it, um, there is plot and narrative. Mm-hmm. So, when I'm giving the narrative, for instance, I would say Secretariat is first, Seattle Slough is second, Affirmed is third. Okay, that's the narrative. Mm-hmm. After I give you the narrative, and then I say, three triple crown winners are one, two, and three, and only one of them will win, that's plot. So you have plot and narrative. Yeah, the, the narrative is more important than the plot, mm-hmm. uh, but you can get a little flowery with the, with the plot, wow. yes. So how did you learn that? I mean, you, I, I mean, I heard Phil George F a lot. You know, because that was my local guy, and they did his race, uh, you know, Johnny Morris on uh, CBS News and, you know, feature race Bruce today. Roberts. Bruce Roberts, yeah. And it's spit, wow, <laughs> that's a name from the past. Uh, you know, here they come spinning out of the turn to him. Mm-hmm. And I don't remember it that way, but the plot and narrative, that's really helpful. How, how did you learn how to start integrating those things? Because it seems to go so fast in a horse race. Yeah. yeah. Um... I never really thought of it as plot and narrative until I started reading more. Later on in my career, I started reading more about um, communications, speech, neural paths, how to memorize, uh, works on uh, creativity, uh, all sorts of stuff. And somewhere in there, plot and narrative came up and I went, oh, yeah, that's that's it. Yeah. And uh, I think if I had any advice to give anybody about anything, read. Uh-huh. I mean, read. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's uh, it's uh, just knowledge, and you'd be surprised where you pick up, where inspiration can come from. But you have to 
you have to plant those seeds before inspiration grows. Mm -hmm. And to plant it, you just have to read all sorts of stuff. I read a book, uh, David Byrne. uh, uh, He wrote about uh, music Mm -hmm. and what music was. Uh, I forget the name of the book. Uh, um, Anyway, but... And so in music, you have tempo, you have tone, you have pitch, and all of those things come into play. And dynamics, which is uh, how loud things are. And all of those things, I finally figured out, come into play in a horse race. And so I thought of Ravel's Bolero. Okay. That starts out very slow. The tempo is nothing more than the space on the page between notes. Okay. When you're speaking, tempo is the time in between words. Okay. So in Bolero, the tempo gets faster and faster and faster and faster and faster until you come to the very end. Uh, The tone gets and pitch get well pitch gets higher and higher and higher the tone is different because he adds an instrument with mm-hmm. every new layer and repetition and can you hold no that was that was us back there we've got a little okay. gopro camera oh, okay. that, that that just shooting me <laughs> okay. sorry, that's it but hold this for thought you know uh but th- that's a really great example bolero you know where do we go back a, a second you can use that. I'll let you use that in your class. <laughs> I hope you're still rolling on that. Oh, yeah. I'm the, definitely rolling. Um, when he veteran steps back, it will yeah. pick up. And then, um, and then you have dynamics, and it just gets louder. Mm-hmm. So that's the way uh, I thought about race calls in time. And then I would study, uh, for whatever, art. And then... Classical architecture, classical literature, there's a beginning, a middle, and an end. And so in, in races, I got from literature, okay, there's beginning, a middle, and end. And then, and I know no science, uh, of a literal arts background, and then I started reading about the brain. Uh, and this helped me quite a bit later on in my career because one thing I did realize about the brain is that it just gets smaller when you get older and you cannot think as quickly. Mm-hmm. And memorization uh, was very, very important for me. And so uh, I read about neural pathways. And these neural pathways uh, can grow with repetition. So then I started memorizing the horses in a very patterned, repetitious way. Horse A, horse B, horse C. Then I memorized them A, B, C, A, B, C, A, B, C, three times. And then B, C, A, B, C, A, B, C, A, three times. C, A, B, C, A, B, C, A, B, three times. And everything was in threes. And then I go from that group and go D, E, F, D, E, F. And between races, you're doing Yes, yes. And that's how I helped the memorization process. And I would have never known that if I hadn't read. Sure about neural pathways. Yeah. Well, how, do, how did I know that that was going to help me call in a sure. race? I had no idea. Wow. Well, you're curious. That's for sure. I Absolutely. Mean, that's why you do it. And then, so I'll digress just a bit. When I was in college, uh, Larry Gelbart, the writer, he brought MASH to television mm-hmm. and he uh, wrote um, uh, uh, the Dustin Off Tootsie, uh, among other, Oh God, and mm-hmm. stuff. Wrote for Mel, uh, with Mel Brooks on Sid Caesar's show. He came to uh, school, and uh, of course, someone asked him, you know, how do you get, what, what would you do? What's the advice you would give anybody that wants to be a writer? Without hesitation, read. He said, read, read everything and everything. And he said, read Time Magazine. I mean, it doesn't have to be War and Peace. Read this. And, and I, I remember writing the note down, going, and it really, it's the best advice. Yeah, I'd have to be, somebody's got to double check this for me, but I do believe the, the angel Gabriel who appears in, uh, certainly in uh, Christian contexts, but I believe he also appears in uh, in the Islam faith. And uh, Muhammad asked him some question whether it was, what do I need to know about God or how do I know about God or, or whatever, what was his advice? And Gabriel said to Muhammad, 
read. <laughs> wow, that's great. So here's, a, here's like a, going back to my question about the role of the announcer. So you said plot and narrative. So is there a, what kind of responsibility, if there is any, and I think it probably is, you have to the fans. Oh, is, is that better or not? That must be. I hear, that's fine. What mm. responsibility do you have to the fans? I mean, do you have to, besides, they want to hear their horse at some point? Sure. You know? uh, your responsibility to the fans is that everybody's got uh, a bet, and every horse has people that have bet on it. Um, however, um, many more people bet on favorites than on a long shot. So I would admittedly will tell you that uh, during the course of a race, I'll probably pay much more attention or good deal more attention to uh, the favorite because more people are have a vested interest in that particular horse. But I don't leave anybody out. And uh, that would, you know, be unfair. And um, I'd like to think I'm pretty even-handed mm-hmm. in my descriptions, um, even though occasionally I would make a, make a bet, mm-hmm. but I guarantee you would never, ever yeah, figure of out course. what horse I ever bet on. <laughs> yeah, no, sorry, I ran out of battery. Here oh. Well, let's come back to, to what mm-hmm. we were talking about. Okay, so you, you, you would never know what horse you bet on. Yeah, yeah if I made a bet, you, yeah. you would never uh, pick up on it. I, I doubt it I'm very sure. seriously. Uh, but I'd be even-handed. And, and when, I, when I first started introducing uh, things that were a little bit out of the ordinary for a race caller, I would say, you know, this horse was three wide, and that jockey had to check. And it wasn't commonly used at that time. And these jockey agents would call me up. What are you saying my jock is three wide for? What? You don't have to say that. Why do you say he had to check? And you don't have to say that. You know, you're making him look bad. But on the other hand, when, when, a, when a jockey did something good, I was first there. So in time, they, they began to realize that I was a, a fair arbiter. And uh, that I would draw attention to things that uh, their, their riders did uh, well. Cool. Uh, without being too accusatory uh, when they did something bad. The, the, how do you, because it seems to me when I listen, I've listened lately to a lot of calls of yours, you seem to be very much in the moment, mm-hmm. right? I think you have to be, but there had to be some sort of training for that, right? I mean, you, like, I would think that just early on in your career, one's career, adrenaline takes off. Like you just would be sure. so excited to do it. How, what, is there any technique or anything you do to sort of be in the moment? No, I mean, I, I, I'm not even sure what I know in the moment means. Um, <laughs> I really don't. Uh, you don't rush anything. It doesn't seem. Yeah. Um, well, adrenaline is a big, big deal. Uh, I asked uh, Dick Enberg, uh, God rest his soul, mm-hmm. uh, who I worked with in NBC for a number of years on the Breeders' Cups, uh, about Adrenaline, and he said, it's a good thing, boy. It's a good thing. Uh, and and again, somewhere I read in some book about, the, you know, what adrenaline actually does for you. You know, it, uh, you actually see better. Uh, you think quicker. You know, this is, uh, adrenaline is, uh, is this uh, uh, hormone, I guess it's a hormone, uh, that uh, is... When, when our great-great-grandfathers, great-great-great-great-grandfathers were in the bush and they heard a snake rattle, <laughs> that adrenaline pushes into their system and they got out of the way. If they didn't have that adrenaline, we, they wouldn't be our forefathers. Right. So the adrenaline is a good thing, but he, uh, Dick Emberg told me that too much of that is a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you have to try to control it. In time, I would control it um, in two ways. First of all, I used a, a drug called Indorol, which is beta blocker that prevents the exa- excessive uh, adrenaline. Uh, golfers will use this to keep their hands steady over putts. Uh, it really doesn't have any side effects other than it, it just stops, it's a beta blocker and stops the, this excessive flow of adrenaline. Uh, also hypnosis and self-hypnosis uh, that I used a, a good deal to calm the nerves. Wow. So did, I could breathe sure. better. If you can't breathe, you can't announce. How, how did you start thinking about even going down the hypnosis path and self-hypnosis path? Where How did you get turned on to that or led in? I was not I, expecting Yeah, I first thing. got it, oh gosh, back in the 80s, I, was, uh, I just started feeling depression. And so I went to a, a psychiatrist and... Um, 
you know, one of the, and the depression, all it took was medication and fine. Uh, I'm not, not afraid to say I'm one of 40 million Americans that takes Prozac, admin, and it's just fine. I just make too much serotonin. That's easy as that. But then we started doing some hypnosis, and uh, I was intrigued by it. And then I started applying it to work, right. and it was very effective. Wow. And you noticed it in your work, you noticed a change in a different sense. Wow. Well, I'll tell you a story. Huh? Uh, before the Breeders' Cup, oh, this, this might have been 88. And I would prepare for months uh, for the Breeders' Cup. Uh, I would call Breeders' Cup training. I would not take a drink for two months from Labor Day to Breeders' Cup after the last race. I would never take a drink. I would even resort to such things as exercise. (laughs) I wanted to be physically fit and ready to go, mentally fit, ready to go, and just study my ass off for two months about those horses. And then... uh, uh, I got into the hypnosis thing. And so it's, I was taking uh, one of the, the hip, uh, suggestions that the psychiatrist gave me. It was before the Breeders' Cup. And he says, where it's going to be? I said, it's going to be at Churchill Downs. He goes, is there anything that you're going to be seeing when you're there? Uh, and I don't know why. I, said, I said, well, there's the Twin Spires. And he goes, oh, that's good. Okay, fine. So his hypnotic suggestion to me was, when I, and, and my booth was, Twin Spires is right there. So when I would see those twin spires, I'm trying to think exactly what the suggestion was, that I would feel calm, breathe easily, and words would flow from my subconscious. Okay? Uh-huh. So, I, you know, I would hypnotize once a week for two months and did the self-hypnosis thing, and that was, that was my suggestion. So I get up, Breeders' Cup morning, ready to go, blah, 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 downtown Louisville, open up the windows, and it's raining sideways. <laughs> It, that's the worst thing that can happen to an announcer yeah. is that when it rains, the track gets muddy and sloppy. All of you can't see well. It's dark. All of the mud gets up on the jockey silks. They're full of mud. They're all not different colors now because when they turn for home, they're all the color of the mud of the track. And my life is over. <laughs> and I go to the track and I feel like I'm just going to the gallows. That's how I felt. And we're in the car, and I'm going up 4th Street, and I'm just, you know, shaking my head. And I'm like, oh, man, this might be my last day of work. And, and we turned down Central Avenue at 4th and Central, and I looked up, and there's where those twin spires, and I just, let's go. <laughs> and it was a great day. Wow. That's, that's a great story. I believe in hypnosis, too. And now, you know, well, a question I have, though you may have just answered it for me unknowingly, Calling races is one job that technology doesn't seem to help, right? I mean, you know, how can you use technology? But now you have these hypnosis downloads and apps yeah. and stuff, and you can like I I've got it on my phone right now. I could I could I have trouble sleeping. I could yeah I'm missing that. But I mean, is there- and another th- another th- the the one technology that really helped things out considerably uh, was uh, uh, I don't know if you remember Bob Dylan and he had that. Uh, Harmonica. Harmonica thing around his neck. It was a yoke with a harmonica on it. And he could play the guitar and play the harmonica at the same time. So when the first Breeders' Cup came around, I knew I was going to be really, really nervous. And uh, and if your hands shake, you're screwed. Mm -hmm. Because the image is bouncing up and down, bouncing up. So I had this yoke designed. Uh, I designed it and had it made. And binoculars fit on top of that. And it kept my hand, kept the binoculars steady. So I did that for years and years. And then probably around 19... Uh, I don't know, 95, they came out with these binoculars that uh, were electronically stabilized. They had batteries in them. And you can go like this, and that image will stay the same. So uh, most announcers use those now. Wow. Well, that's good to know. I didn't know that. So I I just wanted to talk, go backwards just a little bit about the career journey. So first jobs, I mean, we've talked about the uh, Quad City Announce, but I mean, how did you first job as an announcer, and what's sort of the path? I mean, we know the the highlights of your career, but... Yeah. Well, it all... It, 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 my entire career is based on a lie. <laughs> <laughs> like many good careers, mine is based on a lie. Uh, I had a friend of mine, Jim Ford, and I was going to school in Wisconsin, St. Norbert College, Pierre, Wisconsin. And uh, Jim was a buddy of mine, and he was coming up from Milwaukee. This is 1971. And uh, at that time, people got around by hitchhiking. And so, especially when you were our age, I was 20 years old, and so Jim just happened to get picked up on the highway by a fellow named Marty Humbrecht. 
And Jim liked the horses and they just started. And when two horse people get together, they may not know it, but, but they will eventually start find their way into talking about horses. And Marty ran these little county fairs in Wisconsin. And so Jim knew my routine about doing the Phil George F imitation and everybody bet on it and whatever. And so Jim told Marty Helmbrecht, and Marty didn't, Marty called the races, along with being the racing secretary and every other thing. So Marty said he didn't like calling those races. And Jim said, my friend Tom Durkin is the assistant announcer at Arlington Park. He'd probably like to do that. <laughs> Call the races in Wisconsin at the county fairs. And I was sure you think he'd uh, you think he'd want to? Yeah, sure. He'd probably want to do that. So Jim Ford never told me that. And he said, I talked to a guy, met a guy. Here's his number. Call him up. And you got a job calling horse races. And I was over the moon, over the moon. And uh, anyway, so I go there. It's a final at County Fair, May of 1971. And I get introduced, unbeknownst to me, I'm introduced as the assistant track announcer at Arlington Park. <laughs> not only was I not the assistant announcer at Arlington Park, there was no assistant announcer at Arlington Park. And were it not, you know, for that happenstance, I'm pretty sure I would have never got a job calling races. Just a guy getting picked up. I mean, talk about fate. Wow. You know? and, and you were able to get a reel together or something from that and yes. uh, share it with people. Yeah. Yes, I had some of those. And then I got a job uh, with the, I figured uh, the only way I could get a job calling races because they were so difficult to come by was if I was in the press box and an announcer got sick and I would rush in and save the day, <laughs> which is exactly how sure. Dave Johnson got his first wow. job at Cahokia Downs. Uh, when Todd Creed got sick, he never called a horse race before and went up and became the, one of the great announcers wow. ever. Yeah. Uh, so uh, my brother-in-law, the guy that lived across the street from my brother-in-law, uh, Mel Schreier, his name was, he was the editor for the racing forum. And, you know, I, I said, ask him if, you know, you know, maybe I could get a job because at the time I was working, making golf clubs in a factory and, um, uh, he said, well, yeah, okay, so, uh, go to the Thistledown, be there next week. And uh, you got a job as a clerk taking the call for the form. And then uh, it kind of uh, led to me getting my first job when I was at Cahokia. I heard about, as the call taker, I heard about a guy, a job opening in, in Tampa. Sent him a resume, sent him a tape, and that's how I got my job. Wow. Wow, that's great. So I want to turn, you know, I've told you I want to call a race. So I'm looking for some tips. But first off, <laughs> one of the things I really appreciate about you, and I'm looking at your dictionaries and your, I have famous for having adjectives, you know, binders of, of adjectives and words and things like that. Just your use of language. I mean, because mm -hmm. you've got to, you know, you, you've, you've read clearly, you know, was that, did you realize, you know, you had to have this as a, this was your style. You know, this this flowery is not maybe the right word, but this this really great use of language. You know. Yeah. Um, well, that's the those are the bricks uh, house of race calls are made of. You know, words, mm -hmm. and it, it, I did. It, it eventually developed over a while. You know, um, like fast. Okay, they ran a fast first quarter. Come on, there's other words for fast. And uh, in my book, I had, and I started writing down synonyms for fast and for slow and for wide and for every other thing. Mm -hmm. So, oh gosh, I think in the end, uh, in my book uh, that I wrote down these words, I probably had 50 different words for the word fast. Mm -hmm. like 50 different words. Yeah, like from tepid to uh, excoriating or whatever, you know. <laughs> Uh, for words from slow went from, uh, you know, tepid to somnambulant, you know. So, and there were many varying shades in between. It's like Eskimos. They don't have a word for snow, but they got a hundred words for different kinds of snow. So, uh, the vocabulary was, was important to me, yes. So, so okay, just some sort of advice. Like, here's the thing, especially in those big races with lots of horses in it. How I get the names. Okay, I figure I can memorize colors and names, especially I'm going to do a small race, right? Mm -hmm. But counting, I mean, like, I, I was watching a Kentucky Derby of yours, and, you know, suddenly so-and-so is 13th. 
how are you mentally re- remembering 12, 13, 14, you know? That's hard to do. <laughs> no, that, that, that is hard when you're going through a field of 20. Yeah. But I wanted to do with the Derby, going back through 20 horses, is I, I, I wanted to let everybody know something about their horse rather than just saying their, their names. That's pretty easy to do. You just rattle off their names. But when you try to do it sequentially, first, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth, eleventh, twelfth, thirteenth, fourteenth, fifteenth, sixteenth, seventeenth, eighteenth, nineteenth, twentieth. When you get around eleven or twelve, you're thinking, when is this gonna end? <laughs> you know. Yeah. So but yeah, but I always thought you had to get through that so that some guy, you know, like I think when Giacomo uh, won his derby. Uh, I remember saying that he was 19th, and then I remember, you know, picking up uh, in the call that he, you know he, he's passed 18 horses to win or something like that. Wow. So, so I mean, it's just you're you're mentally ticking them off in your head, you know. I mean, you know, I, uh, because sometimes I, you'll go, you know, someone's eighth, and then 15 seconds later you pick up ninth. I mean, how do you? Uh, I wouldn't even remember it because you don't you have to count backwards. You You can. Yeah, there's a couple ways of doing it. Or go the other Let, Let's say there's you know there's 20 horses. Uh, when you're going back to 15, you know, well, it's, well then you then you can look to the back and if there's four more horses, okay, that's what you got. Yeah. Uh, also, I would prepare for that. I would make uh, index cards with the horses' names and the colors, and I would just flick through them and get used to the thing. Uh, and in and, and my race going, the hardest thing to do was to uh, uh, give the ordinals for 20 horses in yeah, the yeah. derby. Yeah. Uh, so I really had to practice doing that. Wow. So so advice. I mean, you've told me to read. Okay. I've got a decent vocabulary. I mean, uh, you mm-hmm. know, not great. What, you know, what advice? I mean, what what can I do? What can I not do? I mean, it's going to be hard for me not to drink from Labor Day. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> you know, um, but uh, you know what? What? Uh, what? Uh, what? What do you think? I mean, I, I'm a novice, and I'm you know 50 years old, 55 years old practically. When I do this, you know, I mean, uh, advice. Well, normally I would say forget about it because I didn't <laughs> want anybody to be a competitor. Of course. <laughs> so I'm retired now, so I can. I don't have a problem giving people advice. Um, jeez, uh, just I, I, if I were you, I would get. Cards, put a color on the uh, on the uh, index cards. Uh-huh. Just put a color on it, and on the back of it, put a name, uh-huh. and then just go flip, 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 mm-hmm. and uh, try to get those names as possible, and do it with all sorts of names, all sorts of horses, and whatever. That that would be my advice to you. What, what you said earlier about. Uh you know, red, and you did it in threes. Red is Peter in the first race, red is Bob in the second place, red is Phil in the third race, and back and forth. I mean, that, and I, I was picturing cards at that time too, as opposed to a program or yes. Did you use uh, markers, Sharpies? I mean, like John Dooley has uh, yes. all, all colored up and stuff. Yes, like that. Uh, Dave Johnson, uh, who was great. I learned so much from Dave. I was uh, his uh, backup at the Middlelands. And uh, I learned a lot from from Dave Johnson, and uh, stole a lot too, actually. <laughs> but uh, he 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 uh, told me to. Uh, uh, that's how he helped the memorization process. And sometimes, you know, you just can't think of a horse's name, but and and particularly if they're on the outside, it's a big field, yeah, yeah. and all you can see is like a little flash of red out there. We can kind of glance down, and if you look on those outside posts, if there's just a horse with red there then you can feel pretty confident about saying that name, even though you can't see anything more than a little flash of red. So that's where that comes in handy. Wow. The, um, I, I am, you, of course, wouldn't have had this issue, but I'm not terrified, but I'm concerned that I, out of habit, will say something like, and down the stretch they come, <laughs> or, you know, here they come spinning out of the turn and heading mm-hmm. for, I mean, like, uh, I guess maybe because you're working all the time, you're not necessarily listening to other people all the time. But uh, any concern about like accidentally cribbing from somebody else, you know? Yeah, I uh, when I uh, first started doing the Breeders' Cup, 1984. This was before, basically before the internet, and uh, <laughs> uh, we had videotape then, and so there were horses coming from all all over the place, and so. 
uh, I would tape these races uh, in New York. They would have a, a races from around the country uh, once a week, and I'd, I'd have them. And but I and so I had stacks and stacks by from Labor Day to Breeders' Cup Day on my dining room table, stacks of these things, and magazines from Europe oh, wow. that I would cut out. The pictures of the horse, I kept the magazines all year round and would cut out the pictures of horses and anything I knew about these horses. Uh, but I would never, I had the guys in the TV truck in, in Naira at Belmont, uh, I had them make these tapes for me, but I said, don't put, don't record the audio. Just, yeah, yeah. just so I, I because uh, two things, I, I start listening to the announcer mm-hmm. and, and you can't help but critique mm-hmm. what it is. And that's not what I'm concentrating on. And then subconsciously, I wouldn't want to pick up a down the stretch they come. Right. You know, so I just had them uh, uh, turn off. There that's was no, good. No yeah. audio. So could, are you able to, uh, because I've been practicing by watching races uh, with no audio on as well, but like, you know, simulcast races and things like that, right? And so I'm watching on my computer as I do it. Are you, is one able to practice that way? I mean, I th- I've got to go to the racetrack and sit by myself sometime yeah. and just call out and record it because I don't have binoculars. I, I'm, I'm at yeah. the mercy. I mean, the camera goes through the trees and yeah. I don't see anything. Yeah, yeah. no, you cannot. You have yeah. to go to the track and, uh, you know, get far away from uh, people. People and get a, get look a like a fool. <laughs> which is what I did for yeah. a, a number of years. Yeah, yeah you, I mean, you have to do it. There's, yeah. You can't call it off the TV. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's... yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's that, that's I learned that, but it, it did help like uh, when without the audio on because I could do yeah. it, and, and and in the beginning and the end of a race I could do it, uh, and I tried to very yeah. much seriously just you know the previous race ended and now I'm tr- learning colors yeah. and names and stuff like that I'm working yeah. on too. Here, here's the thing. If you're going to have your appendix out, you uh-huh. go to the doctor. Okay, you're going to take out my appendix. Uh, how many times have you done this? Well, I've never done that, but I've seen it on TV. It'll be no problem. <laughs> well, point well taken. <laughs> so, um, is just a couple more things. So, I, I, um, we were on a break, and uh, we were talking about you and I were talking about um, your philosophy of getting the names out of the horse. Uh, you know, calling all the horses in a certain period of time. Mm-hmm. Do you remember, all right. What what is your philosophy on that? You said you differed from someone else, but you never well, said what. Well, yeah, you no. I mean, it's a there's yeah. a beginning, a middle, and an end. Yeah. I mean, so uh, sometimes you can you just try to get all those horses out real quick, mm-hmm. uh, and you can do that without. But it takes you twice as long. And, and for for instance, if I could say Secretariat affirmed Alidar, that takes a second and a half. But if your Secretary is first affirmed is second, Alidar is third. That takes twice as long. So uh, it's just a matter of of taste. That's all. Huh. So um, you just thinking of Secretariat and you know moving like a tremendous machine, and then that fantastic affirmed Al- Aladar Belmont Stakes, and I mean, I, I had Aladar. I watched him win the Bluegrass Stakes that year. That oh, okay. That, um, at Keeneland, but uh, influences you have. Which, you by make, the way, the, that that race was ten days before the Kentucky. Yeah, tournament. I know. I know. That's. I mean, I, that's why I, I never bet on a bluegrass stakes winner in the Kentucky Derby anyway. But partly because my brain is like it was like that very end of April. I know. Yeah. So you mentioned Phil George F. Any other? And it doesn't even have to be race announcers. Just you know, in, people in uh, acting or p- public mm-hmm. speaking. Any influences? Who who like was your? Well, yeah. I mean, there's no doubt that all those announcers when I uh, grew up uh, was certainly Phil George F. I sound nothing like Phil no, George F. Uh, but he was my idol, and uh, but I think what I got from him was energy and enthusiasm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think maybe I, I, I took a, a sense uh, from the way Chick Anderson called called those races. I think vocally, I sound quite a bit like Dave Johnson. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's just because we're both Midwesterners. Uh, I don't know. Um, but you know, a little here, a little there. I, I, I can't can't really put my finger on one thing. Huh. The um Good. That's that's very interesting to me. I mean, it could have, you could have said uh, Lawrence Olivier for all I know. I mean, I, I mean, I, I think to me, you 
are dr- dramatic in all the best ways. Like you, there, there's a wave when I listen to you call the race. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I mean, I, the, the fifth race with six horses, seven furlongs on a Wednesday afternoon is exciting when you mm-hmm. call that race. And, it, and the derby is exciting naturally. I mean, the derby mm-hmm. to me is exciting if it's quiet, you know, out there, just watching those guys run. Interesting. So we've talked about, about this a little bit and you talked about, about the job. So, so can we, let's talk about the Mind That Bird Kentucky Derby. If that's okay. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, you, you call races and, you know, there's a few you'd like to get back. Uh, that race is something I would like to get back. Uh, but I never beat myself up about that um, because I got to him so late. Uh, norm, you know, you, you would think I would, but I didn't because I knew I prepared as much as I could. Uh, so backwards and backwards. Well, the problem with that race was that there were four, maybe five horses from Windstar. Uh, who have white silks with a white cap. Now, in practically every other situation, they put different colored caps on the horses, so not only the announcer, but everybody who's watching the race can tell the difference between Mm -hmm. those horses. Um, I asked the people there, uh, the man in charge, actually, if, uh, you know, what kind of different colored caps on, and he said, we're not going to put different colored caps on. And he and he didn't. And uh, I knew right from the beginning that I was just screwed, uh, that I had I, I was just defensive from the very start. All I wanted to do was make sure I knew where those four, I think four of them were exactly like where they were during the race. Uh, and it was wet and rainy and dark and, and just compounded matters. And so I was concentrating on that and it was just defensive. I was just trying not to make a mistake. And uh, so I was looking, you know, I'd have the, the binoculars and I'd look at there's one, okay, there's the other one, there's, you know, and, and, I'd, and I'd use vocal bridges. Uh, for instance, sometimes uh, I would say, and as they move down the backstretch, or, I would, you know, uh, I, that I, when I was saying that, I was looking at blah, 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 all around. Uh, uh, so when I was going, writing that, yeah. down. <laughs> oh, yeah. And when I was going outside to pick up those horses outside, mind that bird comes up, comes up the rail and... Uh, yeah, he makes this big sh- shot to the inside, Calvin mm-hmm. Borrell, you know, you know, and it just took off like lightning. I mean, it was really mm-hmm. amazing. Now, I've watched this a lot. I watched it in advance of, of, of meeting you, and I had seen the race, too. Uh, first off, everyone gets a bad day at work every now and then, right? <laughs> yeah, it, it just happens, you know. But, you know, I, I counted from when, when he goes to the lead, to when you catch up, it's maybe like six and a half seconds. Mm. And then I'm watching the race and it's exciting. I mean, we see this horse making a move and you are excited when you catch up to him, mm-hmm. right? And mind that bird out, I mean, and I'm like, I think you did a great job. And, and I'm not saying this because we're, I'm in mm-hmm. your house and I'm sitting across from you, but the moment of that race, and I'm like, man, it's in a two minute and three second race, there's this six seconds where all this other stuff is going on and visually we're watching it and we're watching this horse go. And then you kind of catch up to us, right, as mm-hmm. viewers. And I just thought, I actually think it's terrific, mm-hmm. you know, uh, but like it's six seconds, yeah. <laughs> you know. Well, what you do, you, you just tend to, you know, when they, the Churchill's very long, it stretches yeah. 1,234 and a half feet long. <laughs> and so when they turn into you and they come and you, you just got to fan out uh, and you naturally start from the inside, go out. And so when you're going out there and then Calvin Burrell was affixed to the rail at all times at Churchill Downs, so it comes up there. But, you know, I wish I could have had it back, but, uh, you know, did what I could do with it. So, so earlier you said, and I think we're talking about this event, you know, you said you gave up a very good job because of stress and mm-hmm. anxiety. So was this part of that whole thing or was it just all of the pressure of Kentucky Derby or what? Yeah, no, no, not, not really. Like I said, I never really beat myself up uh, over the head about that. Um, it, it just wore on me after, you know, a number of years. Uh, and like I explained it to people, um, I was trying to get rid of the stress. Mm-hmm. And there's a couple of different ways you can get rid of stress. And, you know, and, and let's say the stress is you're getting, you're getting hit over the head with a hammer. Okay, so what you can do is medicate. You take aspirin. That's <laughs> really not working. Or you can put a football helmet on and your head's still going to shake. Or you can get stop getting hit over the head with a hammer. 
And so I decided uh, to bail out like that. I was. I remember when I read about it and heard about it in advance of the. <laughs> no, I've got to tell you. Yeah. So that was on the front page of the New York Times, uh-huh. below the fold, which uh-huh. pissed me off. A little bit. <laughs> <laughs> but they put Hillary Clinton and, and some war in Libya on, the, on, on above the fold, and me retiring <laughs> below the fold. Whatever. So the the headline was. I picked up the paper. I was sitting at a bar. Uh, I'm sure you're shocked by that. And with a couple of my friends, and I went out and got the paper, the Times. I knew there was going to be a story in there. Joe Drape was writing it. And pick up the paper, and on the front page of the New York Times, it says, stress fells triple crown announcer. And I thought, am I dead? <laughs> that's that's what I thought when I read it. I, I, thought, <laughs> I, I, I was going to say it before you. I said, when I read it, I thought, did Tom Durkin die? I was like... <laughs> Wait, what, what, I, how, I'm sure I get some alert if he does, you know? Yeah, that's, uh, well, we had the same experience yeah. in that own way. That's really amazing. So, so, but you kept on with your career. You didn't retire, retire you? No, you kept- no. Uh, I, I stopped the Triple Crown uh, mm-hmm. events, and uh, the Breeders' Cup at that point had already gone to uh, ESPN. It would eventually return to NBC. Uh, and... Uh, yeah, it was just the, that I didn't find the uh, day-to-day stress of calling the races in New York overwhelming. Uh-huh. It is stressful. Don't get me wrong. I mean, it is stressful, but it is not that super stress yeah. that you get from the feel, fear of failure. It's it's different to, to fail uh, when you're talking to three or four people, but when you fail in front of 30 million people, yeah, that's something to be yeah. fearful about. Yeah. yeah, It's existential, you know. Yeah, I get it. So, of course, now I want to do this. And I think, well, if you have the stress, what about me? <laughs> what, what chance do I have, you know? Uh, uh, if, I'm, if I'm you, yeah, uh-huh. i bring you an extra pair of pants. <laughs> I will re- keep that in mind, you know. Uh, I, I'm going to dress up. I'm going to, I'm going to put on. I, I actually think I'm going to damn myself right now. But, but I'm going to be prepared as I possibly can. I've told you via email, I said, you know, I'm a belt and suspender kind of guy, but you can't really be, I can be in a live event like that. I mean, mm-hmm. a horse could go down and, you know, something could happen, you know, but um, I'm a prepared guy. I mean, I, mm-hmm. you know, I, I like to do it and I think I'll just be, and I'm going to try to relax into it, you know, and, mm-hmm. and not like rush, like, you know, blah, 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 talk super fast. I'm just going to try mm-hmm. to relax into it. And, you know, uh, it's the fifth race on a Wednesday. And yeah, well, you got race. to have a plan. Yeah. You know, right. you got to have a plan. Now, I would chart out these races. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had column A, B, C plus, C, M, and T. A, front runners. B, really close to the front. C plus, close to the front. C close. M, middle of the pack. T, trailers. So of the pages this wide, and if there's a whole bunch of horses in the A, B, and C plus column, I know that race is going to be fast, uh-huh. early. That means I'm going to have a lot of put a lot of my attention to horses over here. Okay. So you have to kind of plot out, and it never happens that way. Right. <laughs> of course. But frequently enough, it's close enough so that you have a plan in the back of your head about what could happen. And then you figure out who the favorite is. And if the favorite's up here with those six or seven horses, there's an issue. Yeah. Okay, every race yeah, yeah. has an right, issue. Right. Plot. Great. Oh, yeah, he's, I, can, I can hear it now. I can actually hear you in my ear now. Um, two questions. Highlight, career highlight, just anything. I mean, probably a lot of them, but anything that just like those moments of, you know. I, I think the, the happiest I ever was when I, when I got the job at Florida Downs. Uh, wow. Yeah. I mean, it was my first real job mm-hmm. as a race caller. Mm-hmm. And the odds of that happening were spectacular. And, uh, you know, I think that was uh, uh, the happiest moment wow. for me. And uh, and after that, I just tried to do justice to the races that I was had the privilege of wow. uh, being able to describe. Was, was that a, like, I use the, in this word loosely, an itinerant job? Like a lot, like John Dooley goes... Uh, Arlington Fairgrounds, you know, and a lot of people. You you did the New York circuit. You know. uh, I didn't do. I I, I worked for 19, almost twenty years before I got the New York circuit. Uh-huh. Uh, I, at one time, I kept track of how many places I lived the first five or six years of my career, and I think it was twenty eight or twenty nine. Wow, it's just like you know, different the season, addresses. and this is that you know, moving to. I moved basically every three months. Wow, 
Yeah, that's great. Um, and so I end these things uh, asking this, you know, when I do my podcast, when I do this, any questions for me? Any questions for you? Yeah. What are you going to do when you screw it all up? I'm going to uh, look them in the, in the eye and tell them the truth and say, I screwed up. I made a mistake. This is my first time. I did my best and cop to it. You know, I'm not going to try to fake it. You know, if I screw, it's there, you know, and I'm making this film. It's going to be on the film. I, I don't know if I've got a happy ending to the film or a sad ending to the film. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's going to be me on the film. I hope I don't, but. Yeah, uh, I think you got a great attitude. I think you'll do fine. Thank you. Just prepare and uh, read. I will. Great. Thank you so much. Great. Thank you. That's it. That's the show. That's the podcast. Uh, thank you, Tom Durkin, and thank you, listeners, for, for listening to that. Like I said, I really thought it was a great interview, and, and I wanted to be able to play it. I mean, I'm going to have five or six minutes of the interview in the film, but um, but I wanted to share it, and, and he was just a gracious, nice guy, and I learned a lot, and uh, it's always good to learn something. Uh, the film, I've got about three more days of shooting. I shot a very cool recreation um, last weekend. I recreated May 2nd, 1971 when I called my first race as a young boy uh, using photos from the Louisville Courier-Journal. And uh, in the spring, I'm going to uh, have to do some race calling myself, some practices. Uh, I'm doing one more interview uh, down in Kentucky, and then I call the race, and then that's it. So hopefully all the shooting will be done by Memorial Day. The film will be finished sometime over the summer, and then you can see it. As for the podcast, uh, as I said at the top of the show, this is the uh, the final episode of the calendar year and the fall term. It is uh, finals week. I'm done teaching uh, as of about an hour ago. Uh, I am done teaching and I am uh, have some grading to do. I'm just going to take a break. I mean, it's quite, you know winter break time. It's uh, holiday time. And uh, we're going to come back with all new shows in January. But I want to thank everybody for listening. This is episode number 47. I can't believe I've done 47 weeks of this. Uh, we'll be back with all new shows in January. And, and maybe, uh, you know, check your iTunes. Uh, maybe you'll, and check the Teaching the Arts website. Maybe you'll get a little surprise, holiday surprise over the next coming couple of weeks. But that's it for me. Time for me to get a drink. I don't d- drink eggnog. So uh, why waste all that good booze with, uh, you know, dairy products? So uh, I'm out of here. I am going to have a nice big martini. Happy holidays, everybody. Thank you.